passages of the Word, of course. Luke chapter 21, where I'll watch all of it, the discourse, as it is probably more aptly described, the eschatological discourse, meaning that it basically is dealing with the in time. As you know, the Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each record this end times story where the Lord lays out what came to be seen as a two-phased event, a near and a far, we, we can speak of it in that way, or what is probably more accurately described as a pattern fulfillment. A pattern fulfillment is one in which God will take a particular pattern and he will see multiple fulfillments of that pattern. The pattern established somewhere in the Old Testament is replayed over several events and of course that is going to be an ultimate fulfillment of that pattern of which the Old Testament for the most part was a shadow. Now Matthew is the real expert on this and if you open your Bibles to the first chapters of Matthew. Matthew builds the first five chapters on pattern fulfillment. This is why when, you, when you're reading along, it's very easy for you to get confused as to what he is doing. Uh, this is one reason I believe people don't fully appreciate the Gospel of Matthew because they don't understand what he's doing. For example, in chapter 2, uh, verse 15, the, the Lord, the Word of God says that Joseph, having taken the child and his mother by night, went to Egypt. And notice in verse 15, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now immediately, if you are a student of scripture, you'll know that there's something a little odd about that verse. You, you would have expected it to have said, out of Egypt I will call my son if it was prophetic you would have expected it to have been a fulfillment of a prophecy which would have required that it be future out of Egypt I will call my son I'm prophesying that God is going to do something but you notice that the way it's, it's quoted is out of Egypt I called my son. 
Well, now, well, why would it be in the past tense? Now, if you look this verse up in Hosea chapter 11, you'll immediately notice that it is not a prophecy. It is a declared statement. And it is in Isaiah, in Hosea 11.1, 1, it's referring to the past event of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. It is not a prophecy at all. What it is, however, is a pattern. And the pattern <coughs> occurs more than once. <coughs> God called Israel his son out of Egypt. And in a similar way, Jesus, God's son, too, was called out of Egypt. Matthew does this about seven, eight times in these first five chapters. He refers to passages which are not prophecies. They are patterns that can occur more than once. And he picks up on these particular patterns because each one of them allows him to make a point about Jesus that is similar to a point that was made about Israel, the children of God in the Old Testament. They were the children of God. Jesus is a child of God, quote-unquote. And therefore, you can, you can put him in the same venue as many of the occasions in which Israel was in. And therefore, it is the pattern that he is drawing upon that he wants to emphasize. He, he does this over and over again. Example, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 2, he said, he quotes Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children and refused to be comforted because they are no more. You check the context, you'll find that that is not a prophetic uh, intended passage, but it is being used as a pattern, a pattern fulfillment. And if you listen to the... Uh, if you listen to the podcast of Harvest Church, uh, you'll hear these because we're preaching through. Um, I'm preaching through the the Gospel of Matthew now, and if you listen to the iPod, which you can do online, um, you will hear me as I expound each one of these passages on the Sundays that I'm preaching. Scott preaches some as well, but you will hear us as we go through this. It's a fascinating study, and of course, when we get to Matthew 24, we will stop and and uh, have the Feast of Tabernacle for probably a, a year or two. But uh, anyway. <laughs> Back to uh, Luke 21. Now, in the Gospels, um, if you, if you want to do a study or if you have time to wait, to I do it, um, but you, you can do it just as well as I can. Um, each one of the Gospels say or report uh, some aspect of the Olivet Discourse, or what we call the eschatological discourse. But each one uses it differently. Matthew's interest in the discourse is purely, purely eschatological. Now, eschatological means focus only on the end time. 
So if you go to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and you're looking for information about the destruction of Jerusalem, the second temple, if you're looking for information about the destruction of the second temple, then you're not going to find any information because Matthew does not focus on it at all. Mark, however, takes the same discourse and focuses exclusively on the A.D. destruction of the Second Temple. He is focusing on the Second Temple's destruction. Luke, in his discourse, focuses on both. So they have a different purpose for how they're using the material. John doesn't use any of the discourse. He's not interested in that discourse. Though he does speak two, three little verses about the Lord's return. In John chapter 14, he uses a metaphor. Now, each one of the gospel writers used a different metaphor for Christ's return. And they use a metaphor that is of interest to them in light of what they want to accomplish. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 1, 2, 3, he uses the metaphor of the bridegroom coming for his bride. And under that metaphor, he depicts our Lord's return. Now, what is interesting to me that in John's <coughs> depiction of the Lord's return is an inherent, there is an inherent built-in indication that there's going to be a delay between his departure and his return. It's inherent. You, you cannot speak of John's promise of the Lord's return without having to tell people that there is a built-in delay. By the very use of the metaphor, the bridegroom always he was lucky. Daddy had some money and he was able to get it done. They come, they make the deal, he looks at it and says, that's what I'm getting. <laughs> and then he go home to build the house. Goes back to his daddy and says, okay, now I need, I need what you're going to give me and my little piece land and you go over there and he starts building his house and depending on how much he got and how much wealth they have and how good the sheep produce wool he made his little tent and he built his little tent and when it was perfect to his satisfaction his father's satisfaction then he would go get the bride and then they would come and have a week celebration and then they were married the average it was always average about a year. 
it was average. Sometimes it took longer because the boy was a little poor, didn't have quite as much. Sometimes it could happen a little sooner if the boy's father was really wealthy. But there was always a delay. He could not marry, he couldn't go make contract today and take her home. That's just not the way it worked, man. Uh, you, had to, you had to work for that girl. You had to get ready for her. She wouldn't come over there unless you had that house ready to go. Now, when he used that metaphor, that automatically says there's going to be some delay between him making a contract with you and his coming to get you to take you to his home. So, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's estate, and when I get it right, then I'm going to come and receive you, and I'll take you to the prepared mansions where I am. That's telling you that I'm going to be gone as long as it takes me to prepare the estate. Now, naturally, obviously, Jesus used the metaphor. I mean, he could have gone up there. He didn't have to go. He could have just thought your house, and it would have been big, ready for you. I mean, but you, you have to understand that he's using the figure of speech, but the figure of speech has an inherent built-in delay. So, the, so someone says, well, Jesus could come at any moment. Well, Jesus can't come at any moment until he gets your place ready. When the house is ready, then he will come and get you, and then he will take you to be with himself. So it's, there's built-in. So I, I find it very fascinating that even though people want to say that John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, 3 is a rapture passage, they don't want to admit that if it is, you also have to therefore allow for the fact that Jesus was going to be gone for some time. He was not going to go and turn around and come immediately back because that breaks the metaphor. That destroys the beauty of that metaphor. So the metaphor of the bridegroom returning for his bride is used in, in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, and there is a built-in inherent delay in the metaphor. Therefore, you cannot articulate a notion of imminency based on that text. Okay? Just remember that. You can use that. That that will you'll call your quote unquote enemies confusion when you introduce that little element in love and in compassion. Of course. Now, when Matthew got ready to talk about the Lord's return, he decided to use a totally different metaphor a totally different figure of speech. He decided that since the purpose of his gospel was to argue that Jesus was or is the king of kings and lord of lords, he decided to use the metaphor of a returning or coming visiting emperor. And he introduced a term into the Olivet Discourse that was not in there when Jesus gave it. Jesus never used it. But he introduced a term that could in fact be substituted for the event, even though Jesus didn't use it. He could use it because that term summarized exactly what Jesus had said. And so Matthew used the term parousia, a term not used by Jesus, but used by Matthew for two reasons. One, it was a term used to designate the visit of a king. And since he wanted to make the fact that Jesus was king of kings, 
That term was a beautiful term to do that, and so he employed that term. Number two, that term allowed him to continue his desire in every chapter to, in one way or another, reaffirm that Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. And so Matthew's Olivet Discourse is totally fixed on the kingship of Jesus and the fact that when he returns, he's going to return as a royal, regal figure. With all the trappings and all the entourage and all the things that you would expect if a, a Caesar or an emperor was coming to visit you. And so he uses the most appropriate term that could have been used in that day, for that kind of visit, was the term parousia, which is why Matthew uses it, and no one else does, in none of the other discourses. Which is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. That Matthew is... He'll be worth spending some time with when you get up there. You might want to look him up. I know you want to see Paul in Paul's line is going to be so long until you may want to go over there and hang out Matthew for a while. <laughs> <laughs> to the Pauline line and go down a little bit. Of course, Peter line, I don't know how long it's going to be, but anyway. Um, now, in, in Luke's, uh, in Mark's discourse, Mark emphasizes the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is an is a metaphor that emphasizes that a human being, a man, is exalted and has become the head of humanity. That Jesus Christ, one of us, has been exalted to the position that he is our ruler. He will rule over us and we will be in his kingdom, a part of his kingdom, and he's one of us. He is God. He is the Son of God. But he, he's one of us. And the gospel, the gospel of Mark is beautiful in how he does this. The first thing he wants to prove in the first eight chapters is that he wants to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, a human being. Then in the second half of the book, he wants to prove that Jesus is Son of God, which is why right in the middle of the book of Matthew, you have this statement by Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That verse is the very middle of this book. The very next verse that starts the second half of the book is Peter having just said, now, in one verse it says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Simon Bar John, this, you know, flesh and blood didn't tell you that, that came from the Spirit. In the very next verse, Peter says, Now, what are you talking about this going down on the cross stuff? Cut it out. You know, you're getting, they, they, they don't understand. They're not as mature as I am. They, they're all confused over here. I don't, I don't want you to talk about that. Don't say that anymore. To which Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on it. In, in the very next verse, I said, Well, wait a minute. Peter just made this great statement. Everybody, yeah, Peter. In the very next verse, they said, boo, Peter, boo. 
But because there is a, is a section right there where the second half of the book begins, the first half of the book established that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. But see, Peter didn't know what kind of Messiah he was. The second half of the book begins to teach Peter what kind of Messiah Jesus Christ is going to be. He's going to be the suffering Messiah. Not the one who goes straight to crown. He goes cross the crown. That's the second half of the book. And this course there emphasizes that particular component and aspect. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, now Luke is interesting in what metaphor he uses for the return of Christ. 14th chapter of John, he's, on, he's coming as the bridegroom who's been away preparing a place. He comes back to get the bride. He's going to take the bride home. Matthew makes him the king of kings, a returning royal regal figure who's coming for a visit. And when the particular word parousia is a word that actually has the connotation that the emperor is coming, but before he gets to the city, the people in the city go out to meet him, and then they come back with him. And that's what that word parousia means. There was always a group of people who left the city and went out to meet the emperor who was coming. And then they would come back with him. You can see the beauty of the term. What is Matthew saying? Hey, listen, when Jesus comes, he's not coming all the way down by himself. We're going to go up to meet him. And then we will come down with the king as he comes to us. See, you see how beautiful that is? Matthew, I told you, Matthew, he, he, he's serious. I, I like that boy. But anyway, um, Luke, he decides he wants to use a redemption metaphor. Totally different from the other three, which is why Luke's ending is so different from the other uh, two synoptics. I want you to look in chapter 21, uh, verse 25, please. Luke chapter 21, verse 25. Now, I need to give you all of that to get you set up ready to come into uh, Luke 21, 25. Okay? And there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth the stress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the wave. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Now, the language there is very similar to Matthew and Mark. Okay? But he's, he's recrafted it. it, it it's crafted it a little differently from the way it is in Matthew and Mark. And then verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Which is Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 13. Son of Man has come to the Ancient of Days. And he is going to receive dominion to reign and to rule on the earth, and the people receive the authority uh, from the beast. Okay? Now, verse 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, that metaphor is very interesting that Luke decided to emphasize 
the redemptive coming of Christ. You will not find that language in any of the other writings. It's only in Luke. And he uses two marvelous metaphors to build this figure of speech. He says, now, when, you, when these things begin to happen, what things? He says, when you start, when, when there's sign in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, and perplexity to cause the roaring of sea, and wave people fainting for fear before boldness, powers of heaven are shaken, then you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. When these things began, He says, straighten up. Now, this, this figure of speech of straightened up, if the, the image, if you remember that there was a lady who came to Jesus one day to be healed, and she had an issue of blood, and she was been sick, spent all the money. She had been bowed by life. The, the image is of someone who is who had been bent over by circumstances of life, and they can't straighten it back. That's the image of this. And it says, when, when you see this, your redemption, your help, your doctor, straighten up. Now, obviously, you've got to ask the question, what's going on that believers will be metaphorically bent? What's going on? That we, we've been bent by life. Life has called us to be bent over, and we can't straighten up. Sin. He says, huh? Sin on our backs? Uh, sin? Uh, persecution. I believe it's, pers it's, it's the circumstances of the world at that time, Marty. Uh, uh, it's, it's having been shaped by the circumstances. I believe it's going to be tough. We got to be under the the crucible of the evil one, whom God will allow for his three and a half years. And I think Christians who survive will be under intense pressure. And the, the metaphor that he's using here is one that you've been you, it's been tough. But he says when when you see the this cosmic. Chaos, that indicates that your release, your redemption is near. And he uses two beautiful metaphors. This first one is of a woman bent over by circumstances of life and he cannot straighten up. And the second one he says, raise your head. If you want to do a wonderful study, you should do a study of that figure of speech. Raise your head everywhere it's used in the Old Testament. It indicates that you have been humiliated and therefore you cannot look anybody in the eyes. Hmm. That you have been reduced to such a level that you don't have the dignity and the right to look up with your eyes. When I was in India, I met some people in the caste system at the bottom. And these people, these Dalits, basically are gutter cleaners. 
In India, in many of the cities, the septic system is open and it, it runs into the street. That's just an open uh, gutter out of your house. When you, when you flush, it just runs right under the house, right out into the street. And then it runs down a, a little, each, each side of the streets, like we have, uh, in our streets, we have culverts that carry the water away. But in India, those culverts are open. And the raw sewer out of the houses just run down the street. And it, it usually runs out to the city, out to the edge of the city, out into an open field. There, there is no treatment in many, I mean, you go into a city, there'll be two million people there that don't that no sort of treatment. It all just runs out into the street, then it runs along the streets until it runs out into the, uh, into a field or into a stream, which a lot of them run into streams. And then, and so you, you come into one of these cities of two million people, and the first thing you meet is the, is the stench of the sewer, because it's not treated. There's no treatment for it. Well, of course, in these cities, you have so much dirt and filth and trash that these these uh, uh, gutters, get, they get stopped up. They get backed up. And the only people that will, will clean them, that has to clean them, are these dollars. Because they are the lowest in the caste system. Very dark skin, most of them are my color, and, and very dark. And these are the people whose job it is to keep these gutters clean, get paid a nickel a week, maybe a nickel, five, six pennies. And they do it in the morning, early morning, 6, 7 a.m. You see these people out, and they are cleaning out these, these gutters. Because in, each, in, in front of each house, there's a little plank. Well, it used to be planks, but now they have concrete covering over the sewer just where you walk out of your house so that you don't have to step down in that. Well, you know, people throw paper down and cans and stuff like that and it'll get backed up right at the steps. And so these dollars have to come along. And so I was I was standing there one morning watching and here these dollars are out cleaning out and they do it with their bare hands. Bare hands, no no nothing. And that was a that was a covering for a bridge it was probably, the bridge was probably long from that door to this wall, and it was probably as wide as that. It was a little bridge walk pad, and it had gotten all stopped up in the sewer. It was all backed up. It was probably two feet high, and it was just, oh, it was just stinking. Oh, it was terrible. And so here these people are, down in it, no covering, no, 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 no waiters. And they had to get down in there and they had to get down and clean that out, just, just bury it. And I, I thought, dude, that, that's the most disgusting, deplorable thing I've ever seen in my life. And so I'm, I'm totally fascinated by this because I want you to know how could people be human, treat humans like that? <laughs> they have to come out and clean out, they have to clean these things between 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. So you'll see them all out all over the city doing this. But they have to be through and gone before it's business time because 
the higher caste people cannot even allow the shadow of one of these people to touch them. It is considered you are unclean if you are even touched by their shadow. And so if, if these people are out during the day, they always have to be conscious of where the sun is and where their shadow is being cast. Because if they were to, if they were to walk with the sun shining and that shadow, and, and that shadow hit, hit one of these people, they could be killed for that. And they never look you in the face. When they talk to you, they always cook it. They, 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 they're not permitted. Particularly when you're up around some of the higher caste, the Sikhs particularly, they're the worst. When, when they talk to them, they, they never look you up. They never look you in the eye. They, they are not, they're not allowed. And in that culture, in the Middle East culture, that was quite common. If you were a servant, you never looked your master in his eyes. That was to, that would make you seem as if you were on equal par. And so, for you to do the right thing would always be to, to keep your eyes eyes down. And so, um, and they have this little funny thing they do with their heads. If they say, if you ask them a question and the answer is yes, it's that means yes. And so. They, you know, I kept seeing these people. I kept wondering what in the world wrong with these people. <laughs> Until I finally figured out it, it was when they say yes, it's it's kind of a head nod like this. And so, you know, I, start, I picked it up, so I go, you know, say that head. It's pretty good. Didn't work in my house, but it was good over there. So this metaphor here is, is taken right out of the Middle East when, when it says, lift up your eyes. You have been so beaten down and so reduced in your dignity that you don't have, you're not going to be able to look at people for fear that they might try to discern something about you. And so you don't even, you, you only make, make eye contact. But he says, when these events begin to happen, your redemption is drawing nigh. That's when you... Lift up your eyes. Now, isn't it interesting, the oppositeness of the kingdom of God? You would think that the one time when you really should look down in humility, the one time when it's right for you, to be on your face, cowering, and emphasizing that you are nothing, and that you have no right, and that you have lost any privilege whatsoever to look up. You would think that the one time when that would be right is when you look into the face of Almighty God as he descends on the clouds. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who holds your life in the palm of his hand, who could think you out of existence, who could stop thinking about you and you would cease to exist. You right. would think that the one time when you ought to probably demonstrate the greatest humility in your life is the one moment when the Bible says, lift up your eyes and look. 
What a powerful metaphor. Yes. What a powerful representative that text is. Because your redeemer, your purchaser, the one who bought you, is coming to get his stuff. <laughs> Jesus Christ, son of almighty God. Straighten up and lift, raise your head because your redemption Beautiful. is drawing near. I'll tell you something, friend. One of the things I just never understood, even back when I was ignorant <coughs> on the rapture question, it never really just made sense to me that Jesus was going to sneak in here and get us and leave. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just never impressed with that. Now, now maybe it may happen that way. I mean, I still could be wrong. I'm, well, I'll tell you something. Um, the world has mistreated us. They treat us like pariahs. I was looking. I was looking at looking with amazement. They were interviewing some people in New Hampshire, and they were talking about who they were going to, who they liked, who they didn't like. And the majority of them in that room was just. Blown away by Romney. Now, I don't know what your political persuasion is. I don't care. But they just love Romney. They thought, oh boy, he was impressive. But they didn't like uh, Huckabee. <laughs> Politically, I mean, you have a right to do whatever you want. I, I'm... But as a believer, kind of believer. I mean, you know, I'm biased and prejudicial and admit it openly. No shame. <laughs> now, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know who I'm going to vote for yet, but one of them, one of them fellas <clears throat> said, not only do I believe in Jesus, but he influences every decision I make. The other one said, my religion has no impact on me hmm. in terms it. of the decisions that I make. I will make my decision based on one thing and one thing only, the Constitution. Now that sounds good, and I'm certainly a believer in the Constitution, but there are some things in the Constitution that's not in the Bible. At least that's what the Supreme Court says. And I want a man that will say, you know what, I'm going I'm I'm to follow that Constitution as far as I can. But there probably will come a point when I, I'll probably have to go back to Bible because I can't go there. And I just want you to know that up front. Now, if you want somebody that's going to tell you what you want to hear, then I'm not your man. But now if you want a man that's always going to stand for integrity and do what I believe is right, ultimately by the Bible, then I'm your man. Now, which one, now, as a Christian, which one of them boys am I supposed to really be, you know, I'm not saying I should vote for him for that reason, but I'm saying it on the basis of the answer to that question. It seemed like to me one of them is doing the right thing, the yeah. other's not. Yeah. 
Well, tell me, well, I got a religion, but it's not going to influence the decision that I make. Now, you can just understand, I'm not going to, but the way, wait a minute, I want a guy, who, if you got a religion, it ought to do something for you. <laughs> it ought to impact how you act. It ought to impact what you say. It ought to impact the decision that you make. If your religion is that important to you, then it certainly ought to influence everything you do and say, and you ought not to be ashamed and make apologies for it. I, I'd rather be I'd rather be a dog yes. with Jesus Christ than to be a sheep with all the money, all the rights and privileges of the world, but a religion that can't me can't make me do anything except only when I'm praying. Doesn't make any sense, friend. We believe in the Word of God. Yes. And because we believe in the Word of God. We want to stand on that word, and we want that word to influence what we do. That's why we believe what we believe. That's why we're in this room. It's because our religion doesn't stop. It's not segmented in our lives. It, it's everything we do. How I treat my neighbor, how I treat my God, how I treat myself is all determined by what we believe about this Amen. How redemption is going to draw near. How is it beautiful that God painted four very different pictures of our Lord's return, and each one symbolizes something unique and different about each one of them. I find that phenomenally comforting, wonderfully enjoyable. Lord, we bless your word. We bless your name because of your word. May we never be spectators, nor soothsayers, nor may we ever follow May it never be just a hobby. And certainly, Father, may we never do thy word simply because we want to impress others with what we know. May we always be impressed with you. May your world, your ways, be all that we are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.